And indeed, we now see that the whole common market argument is about democracy. It is about our right to decide things for ourselves. It is, uh, comrades, intolerable that the Irish, the Norwegians, the French who were only asked to decide whether they wanted us in, and this very day the Danes have been allowed to speak for themselves when the government, Whitehall, and the whole Fleet Street are still trying to brainwash the British people, of all people, into believing that we are quite unfitted to exercise the same basic right of self-determination. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. Just minutes before we started recording, I saw that Larry Flint passed away. Did you see this news, Luke? Uh, I did not. No, I've been I've been busy doing my homework for the episode, so I have not been checking uh, the news. This is my homework for the episode. <laughs> checking what is on Twitter 15 minutes before we start recording. <laughs> Touche. And, and I was thinking, what am I going to talk about? What what has grabbed my interest this week? And coming to the rescue is uh, the corpse of Hustler Magazine founder Larry Flint. Uh, I mean, I, I never read Hustler Magazine. Most of my knowledge of Larry Flint comes from the 1996 Woody Harrelson film. Right, we've gotten a lot of requests to do that movie, and I have to say, I don't really know anything about it. Well, it's like, it's a biopic, you know, it's it's mostly about all of his legal troubles, and I don't know how familiar you are with his big legal case, because he had many legal cases over the years related to obscenity or related to this or that, but the big one, the one that went to the Supreme Court was in the mid-1980s. Uh, Jerry Falwell sued him over a magazine ad parody that he ran. It was like some rum company, some whiskey company. I think it might have been Johnny Walker or something. They used to do a series of ads that were called like My First Time, maybe about somebody giving their personal experience of either drinking rum or I think it was like maybe sexually tinged in some way. I don't know. I was not alive for most of the 80s, so I didn't see this ad campaign. But Hustler did one about Jerry Falwell that... I'm too much of a gentleman to get into on this podcast, but believe me when I say it was very crude. (laughs) Anyway, Jerry Falwell took great offense to it. He sued Hustler and Larry Flint for both libel, which was quickly thrown out of court because they were able to establish very quickly that it's not really libelious because nobody reading it would actually believe this is true. It's obviously satire. But then the other thing, the one that actually went to the Supreme... Obscenity, right? Well, not obscenity, like emotional distress, that the ad parody had caused him great emotional harm, and that's what he was suing over. And this made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court made a ruling that, you know, you can't sue a satirist for causing you emotional distress, because, I mean, think about what the what the legal implications of that would be, like... If if somebody gives an actor a bad review, can the actor then sue the critic for emotional distress? You know, if a, a pundit says something mean about a politician, can the politician sue the pundit for emotional distress? Well, now that you're saying this, I mean, this definitely sounds like something that uh, people are going to try to institutionalize in the next few years. Like, it's going to become illegal. Like, the Jacobin columns I've written about, like, Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg will become illegal. Well, actually, just before I... I logged on, I saw uh, Nick Pinkerton tweet something about the passing of Larry Flint, and he said, was just reminiscing about how our last culture wars made First Amendment cause celebs out of deranged perverts and freaks, Uncle Luke, El Duce, Gigi Allen, Flint. And, you know, the People versus Larry Flint 
the movie came out in 1996 during a time when all of those figures that he mentions were kind of in vogue because it was a it was a different time it was a time when like the blue noses the fuddy duddies were perceived as being the ones who wanted to burn books like there was a huge there was that huge controversy i don't know if you ever heard about this but that artist who created an art piece called piss christ no oh okay well that's worth looking up i can imagine what it is though a famously blasphemous piece of art that may have had some nasty National endowment of the art support <laughs> say no more but this was very much like where the culture war was at in the 90s and somebody like larry flint in the 90s it was the right time for him to be reclaimed as kind of like a first amendment hero and this came after you know the 70s and the 80s when he had become sort of a villain through the combined efforts of the moral majority on one hand and then second wave feminism on the other hand like gloria steinem for example was a big opponent of larry flint Uh, Anyway, I'm not going to editorialize on that, except to say that it's a very different time now. And I I think Larry Flint in recent years has sort of just been kind of like grandfathered into culture. You know, I I never heard anybody try to cancel Larry Flint in the last in the last decade. And I think it's just because like nobody bothered to, you know. I love the way you followed that setup with something to the effect of uh, in conclusion, folks, Larry Flint is a land of contrast. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is a little cowardly of me, isn't it? But I mean, the fact is, it's true. I mean, I'm not gonna, the problem with expressing any sort of like affection or or expressing any kind of qualified approval of Larry Flint is somebody may come at you with the thousands and thousands and thousands of awful things he printed, totally indefensible things to which I would then say, yeah, you know, fair enough. You know, Gloria Steinem, you're right about that. I mean, what you said just was a very correct observation, which is that the 90s were a remarkably different cultural moment. And maybe when it comes out, we can uh, we can do an episode on the American crime story about the Clinton affair in the late 1990s, which I think is possibly the best example of that there is, at least the kind of best known example. The last thing I'll say on this matter, uh, and, and I am going to, you know, stake my flag in the ground on this point, is that they often say, well, of course he had to win that Supreme Court case. It's an open and shut case. This is a clear free speech case. However, the piece of satire that he was defending was not very good. You know, it's it's not Jonathan Swift. It's it's pretty bad. I'm just going to say I thought it was funny. And that's my opinion. That is not necessarily the opinion of Luke Savage or anybody affiliated with this podcast. Or the, the staff at the Michael and Us podcast, the union which represents workers at the Michael and Us podcast. That's just me. I looked at it and I laughed and I thought, uh, Jerry Falwell deserves that. Well, speaking of the culture war, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but uh, it occurs to me that you and I actually haven't talked about Jonathan Kay's recent appearance on Fox News over uh, getting mocked. Because of his shampoo tweet. Hometown hero. I love it whenever one of our fellow countrymen makes the news. Yeah, I mean, you know, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Jonathan Kay, we're exporting uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, great voices around the world. Um, The thing I like about that case, I mean, I mean, I like all the obvious things about it, which is just that it's incredibly funny. But the thing I like about it most is that, you know, it really shows what the conservative culture war looks like when it's taken to its, you know, natural conclusion, you know, it's natural and incredibly dumb conclusion, which is just people like Jonathan Kay or, uh, you know, the Brett Stevens example was another one that comes to mind, you know, being given these huge platforms to uh, talk about how they're getting owned online and how this is oppression, which is people relentlessly point out, uh, and I think quite fairly, 
is exactly the thing that they're always projecting onto, you know, uh, millennials with their safe spaces and their avocado toast and all the rest of it. Like, it clearly does not occur to these people that their entire, like, conservative culture war shtick really is the same narrative of, like, self-victimization that they're constantly accusing, you know, other people of having. Now, to give a little bit of context, this was spurred on by the fact that Jonathan Kay, current editor of Quillette, uh, washed his hair with dog shampoo, um, and he didn't realize that it was dog shampoo, even though there was a big and cute dog on the bottle. And uh, he later tried to pass that off as, I was only kidding. And he got owned so hard that he went on Fox News to cry about it. Yeah, producing one of the greatest Fox News segments of all time, which was, you know, Jonathan Kay going on to talk about how, you know, he was getting bullied by the elites like Seth Rogen and, you know, uh, various other people that came into his mentions. Uh, Jonathan Kay's mom, as is always the case, who is a reactionary writer in her own right, you know, jumped in to defend him from the evil far leftist Seth Rogen. It's all very funny, pretty uh, pretty typical open and shut case of, you know, conservative culture war going awry and, and resulting in a pretty epic instance of self-owning. But I have to say this kind of thing also frustrates me because it's the kind of thing, like people like Jonathan Kay, ironically, make it very difficult to get anybody to take, I don't know, it's, I know it's a very fraught phrase, so I use it with hesitation, but, you know, cancel culture and things like that, seriously. Because when pe- guys like this are, you know, the face of anything to do with free speech or whatever almost any cause you know associated with those things even if it's a worthy one is going to be kind of dismissed out of hand and i really think that's a shame and i mean for the love of god we deserve a better caliber of reactionary pundit i mean stuff like quillette is just a joke through and through come on speaking of cancel culture i know that you saw that nathan robinson was fired from his post as a guardian columnist because of a jokey tweet he did about U.S. foreign aid to Israel. I assume the show that gave Jonathan Kay a spotlight for being uh, canceled by the woke mobs for uh, putting dog shampoo in his hair haven't leapt on that one yet, have they? Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd imagine not. It was supposed to be this self-deprecating joke, and, uh, you know, I I tweeted it, and then I, I don't know, I think I walked my dog, and then I checked my phone, it was like, Seth Rogen was calling me names. It was a very surreal way to spend my Sunday morning. Before I forget, you know, it's kind of a running joke on this show that we're very bad at promoting our Patreon and kind of even met that, you know, we often forget to even mention that we do extra content beyond what you're hearing on the feed that you found this. Before I forget, I did want to mention that we've actually expanded our Patreon content quite a lot. If you're finding us via the Jacobin radio feed, you may not even be aware that we have a Patreon, uh, but we do. We post previews of the Patreon episodes and most of the Patreon content on our SoundCloud and in all the other places uh, where the podcast is posted, but not on the Jacobin radio feed. So I did, first of all, just want to mention that we do have a Patreon. But secondly, that we've started adding extra content there, not just uh, an extra episode a week. There's a Patreon episode and a free episode every week, but we're also adding interviews with various people that are kind of uh, standalone things. So recently I talked to the economics professor Marshall Steinbaum about the neoclassical revolution in economics and how that came about. Uh, I talked to Edward Onwayso Jr. from Motherboard about the GameStop fiasco, and I talked to Will Summer of the Daily Beast uh, about QAnon and specifically what's going to happen with QAnon in a post-Trump world. 
We're starting to experiment with other forms of content. So if you subscribe to the Patreon, uh, you can now watch a video of me playing uh, Donkey Kong and talking about Elon Musk's quest to become God Emperor of Mars. We're having a lot of fun on the Patreon these days. It's where Will gets to be his uh, true, much more problematic self. And if you like the regular episodes and want more Michael and us, uh, you can find it on our Patreon. And listen, I don't want to I don't want to linger on the Patreon too much because we have a goddamn show to do. But I do want to tell you about some of the recent episodes that we've had on there, because this is going to be relevant to you folks. We had an episode on Arthur Chu. Okay, Arthur Chu. We had an episode on comedians and cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. We had an episode on Steven Seagal's only directorial effort, the eco-conscious action thriller on Deadly Ground. I almost forgot what it was called. Yeah, I couldn't remember. It's one of the greatest films of all time, and I almost forgot what it's called. And we had an episode on Toronto's Worst Reporter. Who is Toronto's Worst Reporter? What does it take to get that esteemed title well you will find out folks yeah will knows from personal experience yeah he and i were duking it out for a long time but you know he (laughs) just in the last stretch he was able to get in there and have a photo finish well there's a lot to talk about uh in terms of the the meat of today's episode there were just a few little things i was hoping to discuss off the top The first comes courtesy of Ari Paul from uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And it's something that I think is just so incredibly emblematic of the early Biden era. And I mean, I hope it's something we'll soon be able to refer to as a relic of the early Biden era, because I certainly hope this doesn't continue. This is from a recently published piece at Fair Media Watch. Journalists praising Psaki should remember spin doctors are not on your side. Um, And so I'm not going to read the piece. But I just want to talk about uh, a few of these media hits that it's curated. I mean, the thrust of it is basically that there's you know, been all this praise for the new White House press secretary, who, by the way, I'm not sure if I uh, pronounced her name correctly. I hope I did. But, you know, there's been all this praise for her, um, you know, and which in a way is understandable because, uh, you know, she's considerably better than uh, the you know, many colorful characters that preceded her in the Trump era. But the character of this praise is really interesting. And I just want to quote a few of the things from this article. Jen Psaki has had, you know, friendly interviews on Maddow, where Maddow said, you know, I believe you're telling the truth. Uh, The presentation that we were hearing from you in the briefing room, I feel like it's too nice. There's a kind of overly cordial relationship, you know, that's already being formed across the media with the new White House press secretary. But the thing that I think is really interesting is that some media outlets are actually taking to praise her ability to deflect questions. So this is from Vogue. Quote, it's clear that her largely non-confrontational style in the press briefing room is making an impact. Um, But then it goes on to say, but at the same time, uh, Pisaki has, quote, proved skillful at the art of the pushback so far doing it calmly and respectfully. Um, The uh, Washingtonian pointed out Pisaki's online fans have created the phrase Pisaki bomb, a reference to her, quote, ability to subtly smack down questions she finds frivolous. And this uh, this is quoting from the article now. Some of those questions on topics ranging from the second Trump impeachment to Marjorie Taylor Greene to Biden's masking lapses to the GameStop stock saga may or may not seem trivial, but it's disconcerting to see journalists celebrating the use of executive power to shut down journalistic inquiry. And the article goes on to point out that, you know, this is a you know seasoned veteran of the Democratic machine we're talking about. 
you know, this is somebody who in the past uh, was a spokesperson for the State Department and has at various times said quite misleading things. I mean, for example, quote, as a matter of longstanding policy, the United States does not support political transitions by non-constitutional means. Um, you know, and as the AP's diplomatic correspondent, Matt Lee, pointed out, I believe on Democracy Now! back in 2015, I mean, this isn't even close to true. In Latin America alone, uh, the United States has successfully overthrown uh, governments at least 41 times uh, going back to the 19th century. And the article lists, uh, you know, a number of other cases in which uh, she said misleading things. But I mean, I think this is so emblematic of the early Biden era. It so typifies the media zeitgeist at the moment where, you know, not only are people celebrating this whole kind of return to normal and, uh, you know, the White House press briefing room having been a particular locus for, you know, anxiety for obvious reasons during the Trump era. People are not only celebrating this kind of return to normal, but they're celebrating, you know, the, the especially charming way that Biden's new press secretary is actually swatting away questions. We're all supposed to sit there and go like, yeah, get him. You know, with the implication being that, you know, we're now all on the side of, of institutional power because the good guys are in charge, which is, you know, really how partisanship works in the United States. You know, for, for Republican partisans, when Democrats are in charge, virtually everything about, you know, the American state is, uh, is bad. Everybody's bad. Everybody's evil. And then when Republicans are in power, you know, the same things that were bad before are now good. And it works the same way with the Democrats. This is an, an especially egregious example, but uh, an absolutely unhinged uh, exchange I saw on Twitter recently uh, found somebody claiming that the migrants who are in detention are now being sheltered rather than kept there against their will. <laughs> Notice how that terminology, how it just kind of flips overnight when a Democratic administration uh, you know, takes over. I know that's a very uh, extreme and, and especially ridiculous example. But I think the basic point stands... So I'm not sure uh, how much more there is to say on this, but for reasons I hope I don't need to go into, it's very dangerous when, you know, the press develops this kind of, you know, credulous and overly cordial relationship to political power. I hope this isn't something that continues. I hear you read those quotes and those quotes don't seem tapped into any zeitgeist, any feeling in the air that I can feel. Well, actually, I mean, I guess there's I guess there's a bit of a zeitgeist to not want to think about politics and to want everything to be all better. But I don't sense any kind of popular zeitgeist for just, you know, loving institutional power. And it's that cognitive dissonance that makes me feel very alienated. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I kind of respond in two pretty different ways to that, because on the one hand, I agree with you. I don't really detect anything like that either. And, you know, as I said, when we were talking about, uh, you know, the inauguration ceremony, you know, a, a lot of this seems really fake. It seems like people leaning into stuff that they don't actually believe and being really hyperbolic about, you know, stuff like Biden's speech and how kind of deep and resonant and important it was. You know, it's hard to believe that anybody really thinks this way. And I hope that's true. Then again, one of the cliches of the moment really is that we all live in these little bubbles where we only see the things that we want to see. And I think we, we do have to consider the possibility that there is a large, you know, older segment of, you know, people to get all their information from cable TV that really are thinking this way and are perfectly content to think about politics in a way that's purely aesthetic. You know, they thought about it in a way that was purely aesthetic under Trump and, and that, you know, freaked them out and, you know, gave rise to all kinds of really bad and, and destructive political impulses. But the same applies under Biden. You know, now, now you've got a, a calm press secretary who uses facts and evidence 
you know, when, when she cites a data point, uh, it's probably verifiable. There's probably expertise behind it. For a lot of people, you know, we have to consider the possibility that that really is all they want. Because there are people who just sit and watch, you know, hours and hours of cable news all day. And the big thing they're feeling right now is, you know, they just want all the chaos to go away. And they want the people who appear on TV to use indoor voices and to speak calmly. And, and for the most part, that is what they're getting. With Tony Benn as Shadow Minister for Trade and Industry, Labour had developed alternative policies to fight Britain's economic decline, including a radical industrial strategy. Against the tide, the record of Labour's retreat from those policies is based on Tony Benn's diaries for those crucial years. This uh, volume of the diaries covers the period from the beginning of 73, which was the last year of Ted Heath, to the end of 76, when the Labour cabinet, by capitulating to the bankers, really cut its own throat and uh, therefore it is quite an interesting period in British politics. Well, today's film is Tony Benn, Against the Tide, 1973 to 1976, and this is a documentary about a figure who I know is very close to Luke's heart. That is Tony Benn, Member of Parliament for Bristol Southeast and Chesterfield, whose tenure lasted 1950 to 2001, and this documentary chronicles four very crucial years in the history of British politics from Tony Benn's perspective. It begins in 1973 with the fall of Edward Heath's conservative government amidst a period of industrial decline. We follow it through Harold Wilson's minority and majority labor governments in the mid-70s, and then finally to James Callaghan's somewhat troubled labor government beginning in 1976. And this documentary is framed largely through an interview with Tony Benn, who is informed heavily by memories from his diaries. He was a very copious diarist, and he discusses the waxing and waning of his own power and influence during this shifting landscape, and in particular particular attention is devoted to the doomed National Enterprise Board, as well as to the May 1975 referendum on Britain's continued participation in the European common market. So this is going to be a pretty heavy Luke episode, because I know Tony Benn means a great deal to Luke. I'm going to be, I think, probing Luke's brain, picking samples out of it and tasting them and then putting them back. <laughs> uh, I would like to start maybe by asking, I, I get the sense that Tony Benn is maybe closer to your heart than just about any other political figure. How were you introduced to him? And what is it about him specifically? Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. And I mean, I, I should say off the top, this will not be, I'm sure, our last episode about Tony Benn, because uh, he's too interesting. And I've spent too much time with him you know, to cover everything in one episode. But I mean, the short answer to your question is you saw Sicko, the Michael Moore film, where he is <laughs> interviewed. And in he does appear. And actually, there's a deleted scene with an extended interview with uh, with Ben, which is a lot of fun. But you know, to answer your question, I mean, I encountered him through his diaries. Uh, which really are incredible documents, you know, and they span much of his life. I mean, uh, I've never been able, I have all of them, uh, although I've, except for the first volume, um, which I've never been able to get my hands on. If anybody knows where I can get that, please send me a DM. I'm a Tony Ben completist and I would absolutely love to have the whole set. But yeah, I mean, they're incredible documents and they're not just diaries that he wrote down. He often had a habit of uh, dictating them. So you can also listen to them. The BBC put out a two-part 
two-part radio documentary called The Ben Tapes, which is really great, which features commentary from Ben, but then also just the raw audio that he would record every night, often quite late before bed. And that's interspersed with uh, documentary footage and archival footage, things like that, which is very much what this film is. I think the film is a, is an ideal kind of primer, an ideal introduction to Tony Ben. There's different Tony Ben documentaries we could have chosen, but this one is based on his diaries of, of the same title, Against the Tide, spanning 1973 to 1976 which I think it's safe to say is the period where, you know, Ben really started to develop the radical politics that would be associated with him for the rest of his life. It's when, you know, the Tony Ben that we think of when we think of Benism was really forged. Well, something that comes across in the documentary is the complicated relationship that he had with uh, Harold Wilson. And Wilson, probably the most successful labor leader, at least until arguably Tony Blair in the 90s. And I think when we've talked about Harold Wilson before, your impression or your take on him is basically, you know, he's a he's a limited figure, but uh, a liberal in the 70s is not the same as a liberal in the 90s. So, you know, they seem to have a complicated relationship, but Tony Benn is not uncharitable to him, not unkind about him. What, what can you say about the evolution of Tony Benn's own politics kind of in the 60s and 70s and how they diverged from Wilson's? Yeah, I mean, so something else that should be said about Ben's diaries, um, you know, in praise of them is that, you know, a lot of political memoirs are written after the fact as kind of post facto justifications for whatever the author uh, did. The thing about diaries is that they're made kind of as events happen. And so you can really see Ben's transformation. He inherited this habit uh, via his father, who uh, kept unbelievably meticulous records of everything. Uh, He used to buy, for example, three copies of The Times every day. Uh, You know, one was for the family, one was for him to read, uh, and then one was for him to cut up and put in this elaborate filing system that he created himself. So it's kind of a Ben family trait, this kind of meticulous record keeping. And Tony Ben would record all of his speeches and interviews and just absolutely everything. And in the background of this film, you can see that, you know, he's surrounded by this, you know, massive trove of documents and recordings that he's made. When it comes to Ben's own political transformation, I mean, you know, I would definitely never describe him as a liberal, although various members of Ben's family, you know, going back to his at least his grandfather, if not further, you know, were liberals in kind of more the the sort of more radical 19th century sense. You know, they were part of what at least sometimes was a radical tradition before laborism emerged to kind of claim that mantle. And a lot of figures like that ended up joining the Labor Party in the 1920s when it basically uh, replaced the Liberal Party as, as the main alternative to the Tories. I'm not sure I would describe Wilson as a liberal exactly, but I but I agree with the spirit of, uh, of your characterization. I mean, he was definitely a, a centrist of a kind. Although being a centrist social democrat in the sort of 1950s, 60s, and 70s obviously meant something very different than it does today. How about a technocrat? Would that be an accurate characterization? I mean, that's a a really interesting word to insert into discussion because one of the things that I think Ben is really grappling with, and and you can really see it in the documentary, uh, one of the things he's really grappling with throughout this period is this tension in the Labour Party between a basically technocratic outlook, which is something that he did criticize Wilson for having again and again. You know, he, he criticized Wilson for thinking that, you know, people were fundamentally uninterested in politics. And so, you know, as long as you could kind of keep the economy growing, etc., you know, the assumption seemed to be that, you know, some form of, you know, Keynesian social democracy could persist almost indefinitely. And Ben uh, definitely didn't think in those terms. The period the film covers, 
is very much about, uh, you know, the moment that I think was most formative in the development of Ben's politics. But there were a number of things that happened uh, before the 1970s that contributed to his radicalization. The first one that I think is uh, is worthy of note, uh, especially since it's not covered in the documentary, which, by the way, it's on YouTube. So uh, you can watch it after you're done listening to the episode. I highly recommend it. But one event not covered is uh, the protracted battle Ben had to fight in the I guess, late 1950s and early 1960s uh, to be allowed to sit in the House of Commons because, you know, he had been elected uh, in Bristol Southeast in uh, 1950 or 51. He actually had his seat taken away from him when his father died because his father was a hereditary peer. You know, Ben has this background that, I mean, you can you can safely call aristocratic, although the background is a genuinely interesting one. You know, there were a lot of radical figures, both men and women in his family, you know, his mother was a member of uh, the League of the Church Militant, for example, which pushed, among other things, for the ordination of women by the Church of England. His father was a labor peer, although the peerage was created, I think, during the war because uh, there was a national government at the time, a sort of unity government, a wartime government of labor in the Tories. And there weren't enough labor peers in the House of Lords. So the government took this very strange step of creating hereditary peerages. So peerages that were permanent and would remain in a single family, uh, but which were being created out of thin air. You know, it's almost as if the uh, institutions of the landed gentry are just made up and they actually don't have a, a foundation that's any deeper than, you know, than they appear to have. But so, you know, Ben ha- Ben had a brother named Michael who would have inherited this peerage, but he was killed in an RAF training accident, I believe, in 1945. So when Ben's father passed away, he inherited this title and the sergeant at arms physically barred him from being able to enter the House of Commons. They called a by-election, which Ben uh, summarily won, uh, and then he was uh, still refused and they put in place the Tory who he'd beaten. I think there was even one more by-election, uh, which he which he won again. Did any of this actually have to do with his social Democrat politics? Or was this really just like ridiculous stuff involving uh, hereditary titles? No, it, it was it was the law. And actually, mm-hmm. a court ruled on this. And I've never forgotten the quote. Part of the ruling said something like a peerage is an incorporeal hereditament affixed to the posterity and annexed to the blood or something like that. So this was like the law as the British courts interpreted it. So Ben had to engage in this protracted campaign and eventually the law in Britain was changed and he was able to take his seat in the House of Commons again. So I think experiences like this definitely radicalized him. You know, and there were a number of other things that happened and, you know, we'll do we'll do more episodes on Tony Ben in the future. But the film really covers the period, as I said, where he developed a lot of the politics that are associated with him today. The cliche about Ben, which is nevertheless very true, is that he's you know a rare case of somebody who became more radical, uh, you know, was radicalized by his time in government, which, you know, you have to admit is a pretty rare trajectory. And the film does a really fine job of capturing why that was and kind of what happened. The film is quite bittersweet in the way that it captures the last gasp of a certain era or the last gasp of a, a period of potential for left wing politics in Britain before the onslaught of Thatcherism and then uh, uh, even worse, Blairism after that. <laughs> I mean, the movie's called Against the Tide, and it's very funny to think that he's going increasingly left wing, even as his, his power is being taken away. Away from him, and he's going to become increasingly marginalized for the next 20 years. I mean, it's a very bittersweet viewing experience in that way. Yeah, and we'll have to do an episode on Ben in the 1980s at some point. But yeah, I think that is very much the tone of it. Um, and I think one of the things that's so powerful about this film to me is that, you know, in addition to capturing the experience of one person who just happens to be very interesting, you know, it also offers what 
is by now, you know, a very heterodox account of this period, because I mean, I think one of the surest signs of the, you know, the Thatcherite conquest, not only of the British economy and the, and the state and how people think about those things, but also the British political imagination as well. You know, one of the one of the surest signs of that is how a lot of people, even people that are not sympathetic to Thatcherism, think about the 1960s and the 1970s. It is axiomatic among so many people that this was this period of, you know, chaos and civil strife and, and decline. Whereas I, I like to think of it as a period of very radical possibility. And, you know, Ben was just one figure. There were plenty of analogs elsewhere. You know, one figure in Britain who I think it's fair to say was trying to chart a real alternative, not only to Thatcherism, but to the, you know, kind of atrophied post-war consensus that Labour was presiding over. He was in the truest sense a modernizer, somebody who saw that the status quo wasn't working, you know, a mantle later, of course, claimed by the other Tony B, Tony Blair, you know, somebody who saw that the status quo wasn't working and that this was a moment to push beyond it. So in general, I think this film, you know, captures not only Tony Benn's experiences, but as you put it, the last gasp of this receding ideological horizon and all of the incredible democratic possibility it represented. We should get into some of the uh, some of the actual content of, of what Ben discusses here. I mean, as Will mentioned, the broader context is really just, you know, the, the economic malaise that hit Britain in the early 70s. You know, there was, uh, among other things, uh, the oil shocks of the time, which uh, caused the Tory government under Edward Heath to attempt to implement an early version of austerity and uh, an early version of the anti-trade union policies that Margaret Thatcher would later make a reality. You know, it kind of famously uh, U-turned on that, which was a a mortal insult to Toryism, which, you know, part of Thatcherism, I think, was really about avenging. You know, a lot of Tories really just did not want to live in a country where manual workers, people who worked with their hands and belonged to unions, could force a sitting government, you know, away from the policies that it was bent on pursuing. But so, you know, Edward Heath famously went to Britain in 1974, seeking a second mandate on the slogan, Who Governs Britain?, And, you know, I think was even more famously embarrassed when the voters gave him his answer. So there were two elections in 1974, the first which Labour was elected to a minority and the second only seven months later, where it was elected to a razor thin majority. The documentary focuses on a couple of, I guess you could call them noble failures that Tony Benn really spearheaded. In 1974, Tony Benn was the Secretary of State for Industry and was behind a project called the National Enterprise Board. And the thesis was that the economy should have a public sector and a private private sector. It would be a mixed economy based on size, and the big companies that produced about 70% of Britain's economic output would be either publicly owned or publicly accountable in some way. And uh, it it sounds awfully nice in theory. Um, It was widely condemned by the titans of industry, and it was also surprisingly condemned by the trade unions, because many of the unions were used to operating in a corporate structure, not so much in the structure of a cooperative. Now, a lot of people would look at this and say, this is an example of why this kind of thinking doesn't work in practice. And what would you say to that? Well, I think, you know, what Ben was uh, was criticizing, and you know, he was a supporter of trade unions, obviously, but he, you know, he did kind of critique them from the left. You know, in 1972, he told the Trades Union Congress, it is simply not good enough to blame the Labour government or the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, entirely for our defeat in 1970. The trade union movement, with all its virtues, must also accept its share of responsibility. 
Until very recently, the unions have hardly made any serious effort to explain their work to those who are not union members, even to the wives and families of those who are. You have allowed yourselves to be presented to the public as if you were actively favored the conservative philosophy of acquisitiveness. The fact that the trade union movement came into being to fight for social justice as well as higher wages has just not come across. If the public opinion polls prove nothing else, they certainly prove that. Finally, neither the party nor the TUC has given sufficient support to other movements of legitimate protest and reform. The lower paid, the unemployed, the poor, the old, the sick, and the disabled expect the labor and trade union movement to use its industrial and political strength to compensate for their weakness. So there's a lot to say about that, but it, it really it really touches on uh, what I think would become the central theme of Benism, particularly in the 1980s, which was that the real issue in British society and the real task facing the left had to do with democracy more than anything else, and particularly the trade unions themselves and the Labour Party becoming more democratic and seeing themselves as social movements as opposed to, in the case of the trade unions, you know, mere partners, you know, with British capital, with industry and with the state who had a kind of mostly transactional relationship and who mostly existed to kind of, you know, bargain for higher wages and things like that. Actually, this is something we talked about in our recent episode on Godard. As to the idea that the ideas Ben was putting forward, you know, could never have worked, there's really two related issues here. The first is just the empirical question of, you know, what would the alternative economic strategy, would something like the National Enterprise Board in the uh, in the form Bennett originally imagined it, would they have practically worked? Um, I think so. We don't know because they were never uh, they were never tried. But really, the second issue, which is what the film deals with, is would they have ever been allowed to work? Because various forces in British society and, you know, particularly big business, but also parts of the British state and the European common market were absolutely determined that they wouldn't work. And Ben's response to that, you know, I'm sure would have been that, you know, you can fight those interests if the Labour Party becomes a, a genuine social movement. If it abandons the kind of small C conservative left parliamentarianism that, you know, often guides its strategy, if it abandons kind of uh, the shibboleths of Fabianism and, and other tendencies within the Labour Party and embraces this more radical outlook. But we should talk about these various forces Ben came across as a minister, which really played the key role, I mean, far more than the trade unions in shutting down this strategy. You know, it's worth mentioning that, you know, various elements within the trade unions were actually very enthusiastic about uh, a lot of this stuff. Possibly my favorite part of the film, not because it's actually the most interesting on intellectual level, but just because it's so much fun to listen to and to watch, is uh, early on Ben is describing the 1974 election, both the first and the second one. I know a lot of people would brush away his description of it being like a revolution, but, you know, British politics, uh, you know, between the 1940s and, you know, the 1970s really were incredible. Where here you have this you know, monarchy that still has a landed gentry. And, you know, in the United Kingdom, when there's an election, you know, usually you have a new government. I mean, sometimes you have a new government the next day. Um, so, you know, as Ben describes it, you know, he has to go and take the train from Bristol to London. Sometimes in this, you know, in the case of the first 1974 election, having no idea whether they'd won or not. <laughs> Uh, you know, he arrives and has to go right to Downing Street to get his cabinet appointment and then shows up uh, at his new cabinet office, which has literally been vacated by Tories. I mean, hours before he got to his new assignment and he, you know, he had this big miners banner uh, hung in his office that said something like he who would be free must strike the first blow. And, you know, he describes in his diaries the permanent secretary of the department. So the chief civil servant uh, in charge of the department coming in and looking like a soldier from a, a defeated army. Army that's, you know, in the act of surrendering, you know, despite all of the left critiques of, you know, parliamentarism that the people have, I mean, it's hard to hear a description like this and, and not find it incredibly powerful, at least for me. 
Well, after the October 1974 election, Tony Benn announced that he had two big goals. One of them we covered to pass industrial policy. The other big goal, one that I think is maybe a little bit provocative in the present context, is to get Britain out of Europe. Yes. Wherever you look, you find British manufacturing industry in decline. You find our capacity to sell our goods abroad threatened by more powerful continental manufacturers who have been able to get investment in their plant denied to British workers in this country. So in May 1975, uh, he was a prime mover on a referendum, which he in the documentary calls a third election, even though it's not really an election, but an election where the Labour Party was defeated, but the government continued. And this was a vote as to whether Britain would remain a member of the European common market. Tony Benn in the documentary says, and I quote, The British establishment cares more about locking Britain into the European community than any other single thing, for the very simple reason that they see it as the final guarantee that Britain could never adopt socialist policies. It would be illegal under the Treaty of Rome, unquote. This is a pretty interesting thing to hear in the current moment, where Jeremy Corbyn came undone partly, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but partly because of having to walk a very difficult tightrope on the issue of Brexit. I mean, I think it's pretty clear to anybody reading between the lines that Jeremy Corbyn basically had Tony Benn's view of the European Union. The case that Tony Benn makes for staying out of what was then the European common market seems pretty clear when he describes it. Uh, How was it defeated? Yeah, so I mean, this is one of the other reasons I wanted to talk about this documentary, because Tony Benn's left Eurosceptic position is, I mean, that tradition has been completely buried. When it does reappear, it's one that's, you know, serially misrepresented. You know, the axis that some people want to exist when it comes to the European Union is, you know, on the one hand, you have the pro-Europeans who favor cosmopolitanism and, you know, uh, internationalism, who are modern in their thinking and progressive. And then on the other hand, you have the reactionaries, you know, who want Britain to be a backward society, uh, you know, and favor parochialism and all the rest of it. And the thing that makes this very complicated is that, I mean, there is a grain of truth, I mean, particularly to the second of those two viewpoints. I can't say exactly how I would have voted if I had had a vote in the Brexit referendum because I wasn't there. I basically agree with Tony Benn's view of the EEC uh, expressed in this film. At the same time, I feel that, you know, I was never that convinced by the Lexit case uh, that was made in 2015 because I didn't really see how giving any Tory prime minister a mandate to negotiate an exit from the European Union was going to do anything except hand a win to the British right, which is obviously something uh, I wouldn't want to do. So the politics of this in the present are very fraught, but all of the language that you hear Ben using in the film, you know, which seems very, you know, which to some people I think will come across as a little bit uh, archaic and out of date is part of what I think is a very important tradition, a tradition that used the language of national sovereignty and things like that to make a democratic case and to make a left case. I mean, you know, Ben talks in his diaries about how he used to get on a plane in London as a cabinet minister who was accountable to a cabinet, who was accountable to a party and who was accountable to constituents and then get off a plane in Brussels. uh, And suddenly, you know, he was being told what to do by, you know, bureaucrats who uh, nobody had elected. So it was really a small d democratic case that he was making here. You can find him into the late 1980s and early 90s uh, having debates with Margaret Thatcher in the House of Commons about the European Union. And the point he emphasizes again and again is that, you know, people, when they go to vote in a general election, should have the ability to change the policies of a government that's previously been there. Otherwise, what's the point of having an election? 
I think that's a very basic point. And, you know, again, it's one that's really been buried over the last kind of five or six years in the absolutely interminable and, you know, very culture war oriented debates over uh, over Brexit. But I think it's very important. And, you know, I should say that this is one of the many issues that Ben really evolved on. He was originally a keen European on the grounds that he thought that uh, the European Union might actually end up being a potential counterweight to the power of international capital. But, you know, his actual experiences with the EEC as a minister convinced him that that wasn't going to be the case. I should say that, you know, the referendum campaign in 1975 actually had a lot of difficulties that came out of the fact that there were, you know, people like Ben were in, were in favor of the no side. But, you know, so were people like Enoch Powell, right? There are always different cases, you know, the just as the Brexit case in 2015, you know, there was a reasonable left case you could make for a yes vote, get Britain out. But also, you know, the Brexit case that was being made by the Tories was so clearly a reactionary one and had a lot of, you know, nativist sentiment behind it. So I think that, among other things, contributed to this pretty resounding defeat, which, uh, you know, Ben says in his diaries and in the film was really, uh, you know, the beginning of the end for the alternative economic strategy that he'd envisioned. The second thing is, despite the fact we've been told we're an entrepreneurial society, this is a country today that has an utter contempt for skill. You talk to people who dig coal, run trains, doctors, nurses, dentists, toolmakers, Nobody in Britain is interested in them. The whole of this so-called entrepreneurial society has focused on the city news we get in every bulletin, telling us what's happened to the pound sterling to three points of decimals against a basket of European currencies. Skill is what built this country's strength, and it is treated with contempt. I must confess, the auctioning off of public assets particularly the latest disgusting Frankenstein advertisements who told me more about the mentality of the minister who devised the scheme than it did about the sale itself. These are assets built up by the labour of those who work in electricity and by the taxpayer who put the equipment in, now to be auctioned off at half their price to make a profit for a tax cut for the rich before the next election comes. If these were local councillors, they would be before the courts for willful misconduct. And because they are ministers, and then some of them later go on the boards of the companies they privatised, they are treated as businessmen who know better how to handle it as members of the board of directors than allegedly they did as ministers responsible. In an article that was published last year in Jacobin, Colin Lees and the late Leo Panitch wrote of Tony Benn. It was a tribute to Tony Benn called Tony Benn Spent His Life Fighting for Democracy and Socialism. They wrote of him, Although Benn played a leading role in articulating the Labour New Left's politics and getting its agenda debated in the cabinet and shadow cabinet, as well as in the party executive and its committees, the main organizations that composed it were not built around him. Even in Parliament, no Bennite faction of MPs emerged. Ben's role was not as the organizer, but as the tribune. I find that quite interesting because, you know, we're we're beginning to see in the United States the emergence of uh, Sanders Democrats, if you will, uh, many of them running a few of them, a couple of very visible Sanders Democrats have been elected to Congress. But according to this article in, in Jacobin, there wasn't that kind of movement around Ben necessarily. 
why do you think this is? And do you think it's a knock against his legacy at all? And actually, I would like to maybe build on that by saying, what is his legacy if it's not building a mass politics? It's quite inspiring how he remained, as they say, a tribune for a certain kind of politics. You know, maybe his legacy was one as kind of an intellectual leader. But is it a knock on his legacy that he didn't inspire a movement? Yeah, well, you should say here that the, you know, the passage you just read, part of the reason why this is important is because, you know, the Bevanites, who were the previous kind of, I mean, that was like the previous generation's left faction, were quite literally a faction in Parliament in the Labour Party. Like, they had their own whips and things like that. So what Leo and Colin Lees meant was that Ben didn't literally command a, a, a faction. And I mean, I think he very much did, uh, you know, inspire a movement. And I think kind of somewhat unwillingly ended up becoming a leader of it. I mean, by the 1980s, he was so clearly the most visible, you know, leader of the of the left. And, you know, his uh, 1983, I guess the 1983 or 1982 campaign for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party was really kind of the high watermark, which he lost by about 0.1% of the vote. That was really the high watermark of, of Benism. The Sanders parallel is is very interesting because I think Ben fashioned himself as tribune rather than leader for the same reasons that, you know, Sanders does much the same thing, which is that if a movement's going to succeed, it's got to be a movement. It can't be, you know, something built around a single person. Of course, the irony of that in both cases is that inevitably, you know, individuals do become, you know, particularly when they're people like Bernie Sanders and Tony Benn, they do become leaders and they take on central roles in, you know, the political imaginations of the people in the movements they're speaking for. And that can create a a certain kind of tension. But, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, you asked me about Tony Benn's legacy. Uh, There's another parallel with Sanders here, which is that, you know, Tony Benn, much to his chagrin, was very much turned into a kind of, you know, national treasure after he left Parliament. Um, which is something that he really hated. And, you know, we talked about this, you know, a few weeks back when we were talking about the sort of depoliticized versions of the Bernie myths, you know, meme, um, and how they were kind of symptomatic of, among other things, people no longer perceiving him as a threat. What was done with Tony Benn will absolutely be done with Bernie Sanders whenever he retires from the U.S. Senate. The kinds of people who issued the most, you know, the kinds of media outlets, especially who issued kind of these seething or, you know, published these seething denunciations of him and the people who supported him uh, will suddenly find that he's an an adorable national grandfather, which is what they uh, which is what they largely did with Tony Benn, who, to his credit, basically maintained his uh, his politics throughout the rest of his life. And you can see that in uh, in his later diaries, I think. At one point in the documentary, he says, you should only resign from a cabinet if you have come to the conclusion that the cabinet you're a member of or the government you're a member of or the party you're a member of is no longer the lesser of two evils. Now, I know he eventually retired from politics in 2001, and I know he's been quoted as saying something like he was retiring from parliament to spend more time on politics. What was his relationship with or perception of Tony Blair, if if any? Well, I mean, obviously, he was a huge critic of the Iraq war. And he did. He was in uh, he was a labor MP, you know, when Tony Blair was leader. In fact, I mean, it's crazy to think that, uh, you know, Tony Benn stood for election in 1997. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's astonishing just how long he was in parliament. Do his diaries get into it at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, he was, you know, he was a critic of a lot of uh, a lot of what happened, even in the early Blair years. I mean, I think, you know, one of the entries that uh, that has stuck with me is the one from election night in 1997, which I think really captures how a lot of people were feeling at the time and why, uh, you know, Labour's landslide on a very conservative program, uh, nevertheless, 
filled people with uh, with joy and relief because by that point they'd been out of power for 18 years. I mean, they'd been in the political wilderness. I don't think anybody had really quite grappled with just how far to the right Tony Blair was really going to take the Labour Party, although the, you know, the signs were very, uh, very clearly there. It's clearly what he intended to do. I mean, there are various anecdotes from his diaries in the late 90s about, you know, things like Tony Blair giving a speech in his constituency and not telling him, things like that. Uh, meeting constituents who said, well, I used to vote Labour, but now Tony Blair's the leader and I won't do, you know, I don't do that anymore. One of the friendly criticisms that you can make of Tony Benn is that, you know, he always maintained an allegiance to the Labour Party. I mean, his critics on the kind of far left, that is usually the thing that they level against him. And I suppose, uh, you know, in his diaries, you can see him being quite sentimental about it. I've never really had a problem with any of that. To me, his career is pretty much a model for how you can be a socialist politician, even in a context that's very hostile to the things you believe. I know you've always admired Bernie Sanders for never actually becoming officially a Democrat, even, even though he is, for all intents and purposes, a Democrat. Do you think there's a great deal of difference between his approach and Tony Benn's approach? Well, I mean, the biggest difference is just that the party systems in, in the UK and the United States are so different. The UK is a parliamentary democracy with a first-past-the-post electoral system, and so as a result, it kind of has uh, you know room for three parties. And since the 1920s, you know, one of them has been something which was founded to be a vehicle for the British working class. So I think they're really just uh, different contexts, but I think they definitely agree on a whole lot. This doesn't really fit in anywhere, but something big and broad I might say about Ben's legacy is just that I think his diaries and and kind of his whole experience. You know, there's so much perceptiveness in all of it about what was going on. And, and there's a lot of very forward thinking. I think he was very perceptive about some of the changes that were happening in British politics. And, you know, he saw a lot of big changes coming. Again, this doesn't really fit in anywhere, but uh, there's a quote from him uh, in 1970 in which he basically predicts neoliberalism. Uh, he talks about an alternative philosophy of government now emerging everywhere on the right taking as the starting point of its analysis that modern society depends on good management and that the cost of breakdowns in the system is so great that they really cannot be tolerated and legislation to enforce greater and more effective discipline must now take priority over other issues. The new citizen is to be won over to an acceptance of this by promising him greater freedom from government, just as big business is to be promised lower taxes and less intervention, and thus be retained as a rich and powerful ally. But this new freedom to be enjoyed by big business means that it can then control the new citizen at the very same time as government reduces its protection for them. So that's from 1970, an unbelievably perceptive comment, which I think very much describes the philosophy governing many of our societies today. Anyways, I could go on talking about Tony Benn uh, forever and ever, and we will uh, we'll do more episodes on him in the future. There are individual episodes from his career that are, you know, worthy of entire episodes in their own right. So I don't want to spend another hour, uh, you know, beating well over the head with uh, Tony Benn trivia. But I will just say as a final comment on the film, which uh, again is on YouTube and, and which, uh, you know, I highly recommend. It's a, it's a really great watch and it's only about uh, 50 minutes long. Something I absolutely love about this is, you know, this this sense of radical possibility, this moment of uh, democratic possibility that still existed in the early 1970s, even though it was constantly under siege and under threat. As I said before, I think this is a period that is, you know, largely remembered even by people not sympathetic to Thatcherism or to Blairism, you know, as a period of kind of chaos and decline. I don't like to think about it that way. 
it's anecdotal, but I think one thing that, that sums up what I like to think of as the real spirit of Britain in the early 1970s comes in the form of a song, a song by a band called The Straubs, which went to number two on the British charts in 1973. So this was when the Heath government was fighting the unions. I could talk on and on about Tony Benn, but I think this is a good place to leave it. See you next time, folks. Bye, everyone. forces. I do not share the general view that market forces are the basis of political liberty. Every time I see a person in a cardboard box in London, I say that person is a victim of market forces. Every time I see a pensioner who can't manage, a victim of market forces. The sick who are waiting for medical treatment that they could accelerate by private insurance, they are the victims of market forces. And with the disappearance of the Prime Minister, who was a great ideologue, I mean, her strength was that she understood a certain view of life. And when she goes and she's gone, there will be a great ideological vacuum. And it's open saying we will run market forces better than she did because her whole philosophy was that you measured the price of everything and the value of nothing. And we have to replace that. And uh, I... Uh, had one uh, experience the other day which confirmed me in my view that she hasn't really changed the thinking or culture of the British people. I don't know how many people travel as I do on trains, but I go regularly on the trains and I see all the little businessmen with their calculators working out their cash flow, frowning people, looking and glaring at each other. Thatcherite trains, the train of the competitive society. But coming back from Chesterfield the other day, the train broke down. And on the, the it, holy chain, somebody came in and said, I have a cup of tea from my thermos. And then people looked after each other's children. And a young couple called to me, and I said, after about half an hour, how long have you been married? Oh, we met on the train, they said. And a woman said, will you get off at Derby and ring my son in Swansea, because he'd be worried. By the time we got to London, we were a socialist train. Because <laughs> you can't change human nature. 
there is good and bad in everybody, and for ten years it is the bad lady and the good that has been denounced as lunatic, out of touch, cloud cuckoo land, extremist and militant. And that's what the party opposite have done. They don't quite yet know. They think it's the retirement of a popular headmistress under circumstances some might regret. Actually, they've killed the source of their own philosophy and opened the way for quite different ideas.